Well, good evening. Did you all have a Sunday afternoon now? You know, as we were singing that first hymn, Rejoice Ye Pure in Heart, that second stanza, Bright Youth and Snow Crown Age. Well, that's what we've had today. We started off this morning with Bright Youth. Our brother Zach preached a wonderful message this morning. And now Snow Crown Age. Well, let's say I'm, I'm getting there. This month marks my 17th year here at Christ's Covenant as pastor to the senior adults. Now, you know, we have two kinds of seniors here. We have young seniors, um, and they are folks that somewhere fall between 60 and 70. And then we have the Rio McCoy uh, that starts at 70 and go to 97. Of the 70 to 97, we have about 153 seniors, 22 of which are in their 90s. We have two that are 97, and out of the 21, 15 of them are here on a Sunday. Out of the other categories, we have about 53 that are in their 80s, and then the rest fall in the 70s. But I thank the Lord for this church that has the perspective of generations in communities and that all of us play a part in building up the kingdom of God. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 16 and look, if you will, at verse 22. Acts 16 and verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Lord, we are privileged to be here tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we pray this evening, Father, that your spirit may be our teacher, that he will show us Christ, that he may strengthen our faith, that he might convict us of sin, and that he would transform us as we renew our minds, applying By your grace, the word to our hearts. Lord, I ask that your servant may know of your presence and anointing in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you respond in Acts chapter 16, verses 22 through 25? Paul and Silas had been falsely a charge of creating mass confusion. Uh, They were severely beaten. They were thrown into prison. They were taken to the high security section of the prison. Their legs were fastened in stocks designed to induce a painful cramping by spreading their legs as wide apart as possible. Every breath that they took painfully reminded them of their bruised ribs and kidneys. Their backs lacerated, fever ravaging their bodies as they breathed the foul-smelling air in the dark, filthy prison cell. 
And yet, despite all of that, they maintain a joyful attitude. Notice, if you will, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. How could Paul and Silas praise God under such deplorable conditions? I think they understood what many of us seem to forget, that praising God does not depend on our circumstances. Christians do not rejoice in their circumstances. They rejoice in the Lord over their circumstances. Paul and Silas had a peace that surpassed all understanding. Paul and Silas were not alone here in the prison. They rejoiced that the sovereign God was in control and not allowing anything to happen to them that it was not for their good. Their reaction to their circumstances here in Acts 16 reveals the peace of God that Paul writes to us in Philippians chapter 4. So turn with me to our text tonight now, Philippians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 9. Such a familiar, precious portion of scripture that it can very easily lose its impact because we've read it, we've memorized it, we've studied it, and we often put it on cards of encouragement to other people. Now notice what Paul says to us tonight in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We saw an illustration of those verses in Acts 16. In the midst of that dark prison cell, Paul and Silas were praying and praising God, rejoicing evermore. But what I want us to focus on tonight is what Paul unfolds after verse 4. He unfolds before us the peace of God in four significant ways. First of all, in verse 5, He gives us an awareness that is all engaging. Look at verse 5. The Lord is near. The second thing we find here is an admonition. All embracing. Stop your worrying. Which then he gives us in verse 6 and 7 an antidote 
That's all-encompassing. In everything, in everything, pray. And then in verses 8 and 9, he gives us a wonderful assurance that's all-encouraging. Think and do. So here we go to verse 5. Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The church at Philippi was facing stressful times, which included threatening discord on the inside. Now, in verse 5 here, Paul has just commanded the Philippians to be gentle to all men within that church. And then if you look at verse 6, he gives us another command. The next command is to stop worrying. Do not be anxious about anything. And sandwiched in between these two imperatives is the sentence, Ho Kyrios and Goose, the Lord is near. It's a rather unique sentence in that it is supportive to the command that precedes it and to the command that follows it. Paul makes the Philippians aware of the fact that the Lord is near. But what does he mean by that? Does he mean that the Lord is near in time, referring to his second coming, or in space, that he's personally by their side? I think the Apostle Paul means both prophetic and personal. The Greek word for near and geese is ambiguous in its use. So let's consider the prophetic presence of the Lord. For certain, Paul believed in the soon return of the Lord for his own. Go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul was looking to the Savior who will one day change his vile body that it may be fashioned unto the Savior's glorious body. That phrase in verse 5, the Lord is near, is like 2 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22, where Paul writes, Maranatha, meaning our Lord comes. Then James in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. There's a prophetic ring to this sentence. I was raised in a church that believed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. We used to sing the songs of the second coming. And we had people in our church that lived in the reality that Jesus was going to come in their lifetime. Could that be what Paul was saying when he wrote, the Lord is near? Could well be. But let's also consider the personal presence of the Lord. Having reference to space, that the Lord is close by, that he is present, and that he will never leave me. And therefore, he's able to help and deliver me. Remember the words of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6? The writer declares, For the Lord said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. 
so that I may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do. For the believer, the presence of the Lord is all engaging, as the Savior himself said in John chapter 10, verse 28. He said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. Being aware that the Lord is near is being able to say regarding whatever circumstance may be in my life at this time, for this I have Jesus. In my home church in Baltimore, there was a homebound lady by the name of Mamie Houston, beset with many maladies. For the last 25 plus years of her life, she was more or less restricted to her home. But more than once, I would hear her say these words, for this, I have Jesus. For this failing eyesight, I have Jesus. For this poor hearing, I have Jesus. For this lifestyle, this shut-in lifestyle, I have Jesus. And beloved, so it is for you and me. We can say for whatever circumstance comes our way, for this, I have Jesus. And when you engage in the reality of the Lord's soon return and of his abiding presence, you find that those two things together spell H-O-P-E, hope. And I think that's what Paul was trying to flame into the hearts of the Philippians when he says, the Lord is near. When you grasp the awareness that the Lord is near, it's like discovering an oasis in the desert. From the spring of water, you lavish it upon your soul to cool yourself and to replenish your strength for the rest of your journey. Tonight, let me ask you this. Are you aware of his presence? Are you aware that he's ever by your side? The grand gospel song, just when I need him, Jesus is near. Just when I falter, just when I fear, just when I need him most, he is near. The psalmist declares in Psalm 48, verse 14, he says, For this God is our God forever and ever, and he will be our guide even unto death. Because the Lord is near, Paul now commands us. He says, cease from your worrying and tell him your needs. He now gives us an admonition that's all embracing. Stop your worrying. The construction of this phrase indicates that the prohibition forbids the continuance of an action habitually going on. You see, with all the problems that the Philippians were facing, persecution, false teachers, and division, they resorted to the pagan way of dealing with their problems. 
they were caught up in worrying, showing a lack of trust in God's care for his elect. Beloved, tonight, worry is the greatest enemy to peace. You know, the medical word for worry is anxiety. Americans are supposed to be the specialists in worrying. In fact, there was a term coined back in 1882 called Americanitis. This term was given to certain rundown conditions of the nerves, supposedly. But you know what? If Paul says to stop worrying, if we worry, then you know what we're doing? We're sinning against God. Worry is a sin. We as Christians get especially frustrated over worry because we know we're not supposed to worry. So we worry about not worrying. There's a great preacher out of Greensboro, North Carolina, Dr. Vance Havner. He had a way of saying things. And Dr. Havner said this about worry. He says, worry is like a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. If worry is the enemy of peace, it's important for us tonight to understand how it erodes peace. Worry is anxiety over circumstances beyond our control. It usually lingers and increases. It paralyzes us and causes us to delay and hesitate. The worrier really believes that the world revolves around him and that nothing should ever happen against him or his plans. When you look at worry, you find that it stems from selfishness and from an inability to trust the sovereignty of God in our lives. Beloved, when I worry, it's because I'm not yielding control of my life to the authority of Jesus Christ. That is, in our moments of anxiety, we're not consciously trusting in and yielding to the authority of the Lord who is near. Paul says, be not anxious. Are they not the same words that the Savior spoke to his disciples back in Luke chapter 12, verse 22, where he says, take no thought for your life. What shall we eat? Neither for the body, what we shall put on. The church father Clement said this about worry. To be free from anxiety is fitting and right for the people of God. So in verse 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. In the vernacular, he means to cut it out. Or in the words of Barney Fife, you got to nip it in the bud. So to this worry... He gives us an antidote. And notice the antidote here in verse 6. He says, pray. He gives us an antidote that is all-encompassing. But in everything, pray. Paul's antidote stands in sharp contrast to this all-embracing negative command, be anxious for nothing, as this positive command, 
is all-encompassing. But in everything, in everything pray. Everything that the Philippians are facing is to be bought before they're gone. By prayer and petition with thanksgiving. And this antidote to worry involves prayer and praise. And when those two things are in our lives, then manifested from God is both his provision and his power. Now, notice here, Paul uses four different words for prayer. He uses the general word for prayer. The article before the Greek here in the prayer is your. It's used in reference to the Philippians using their petitions arising from their anxieties. They're to lay out their troubles before the Lord. You know the Old Testament illustration of that? It's found back in 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. There was a king by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread the letter before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. So we are to take our worries to the throne of grace and spread them out before him, casting all of our cares upon him, for he careth for us. And so Paul says here, but in everything, pray. Then he goes on to say, with supplication, meaning focusing on the urgent requests for a need to be met. And for the Philippians, it was a matter of persecution, and it was a matter of division, and it was a matter of false teachers. And they were to bring those urgent requests before the throne of God. He also uses the word thanksgiving, recalling the blessings or the praises that one brings before the throne of grace. In the time of testing, the real test of our testing is how we respond to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And then he uses the word requests. Throughout his writings, Paul makes much on the necessity of giving thanks. An important element in thanksgiving is remembrance, recalling the blessing or praise before the throne of grace. You know, even amid the circumstances that we may face, we may not be able to recognize anything in the circumstance to be thankful for. But, but... We do know of past blessings, and we know of the blessedness of the Savior, and that he is in control. And we can give thanks to God for those things, even in the time of testing. Notice here, if you will, when he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. Be made known to God is a prepositional phrase, prostone theon. Known unto God indicates that these petitions are made by those who are in close relationship with God, turn to God in prayer. To those who are aware of his presence, 
and turn to him with their requests and thanksgiving is the promise of the incomprehensible peace of God. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is this peace of God? It originates in God who himself possesses and bestows it upon his own. It is the peace that enables you to face whatever it is before you. This phrase, peace of God, is unique in that it's found nowhere else in the Holy Scripture but here. The peace of God goes beyond human understanding. What would it mean to the Philippians as Paul's letter was being read to them? Well, it could be understood to mean that God's peace is superior than any human can think or achieve on his own. Or the unique nature of God's peace is beyond the power of human comprehension. Paul was saying to the Philippians that God's peace is more wonderful than they can comprehend and that it will guard them. This incomprehensible peace of God as a sentinel stands guard over the believer protecting his heart and mind that is his whole inner life which is so vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. Isn't this the very thing that Isaiah tells us about in Isaiah 26.3? Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. This divine protection of the heart and the mind occurs in Christ Jesus. It's a protecting peace. John Gill, the great preacher from England, put it this way, as peace with God secures the believer in Christ from all condemnation, the peace of God keeps the believer through Christ from despair and anxiety, enabling him to live godly in this present evil world. Think of another great gospel song that says, all your anxiety, all your care, bring to the mercy seat, leave it there. Never a burden he cannot bear, never a friend like Jesus. And if you take your cares and anxieties to the Lord and give them to him, you know what's going to happen when you give them to the Lord? It's going to leave a void in your mind and in your thought life. And so the last thing the Lord doesn't want you to become is an empty-headed Presbyterian. He calls us to become biblical thinkers, especially in our day of emotionalism and pragmatism, when the importance of serious thinking about biblical truth is downplayed. So look at verse 8. Paul commands us to think. And may I be so bold to say that proper thinking is not optional for the Christian. Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul gives to us here, if we take the antidote to stop worrying and pray, he gives us this assurance that's all encouraging. He tells us to do two things, to think and to do. The apostle says we're to meditate on the word. Where do you get that from? Verse 8, whatever things are true. The repository of truth is the word of God. The Lord himself declared, thy word is truth. So he tells us, first of all, to meditate on the truth. And having meditated on the truth, we're to manifest the truth. Whatever things are true, it means reading and analyzing and meditating on the word of God. And then he gives these seven virtuous categories of thought that are all based on the truth of God's word, all of which are ways to view the truths of scripture. We're to think of it as honorable. We're to think of it as right, righteous. We're to think of it pure, things that are holy and morally clean. We're to think on things that are lovely, what is amiable and pleasing unto God. Whatsoever things are good report, our thoughts elevated by Holy Scripture, excellent and praiseworthy. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 19. And look at verses 7 through 11. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, David tells us that the word of God is where we find whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, amiable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Look, if you will, in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the honeyed and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. We're to think. That is, we're to dwell. The Greek word, logizomai, means to evaluate, to consider, to calculate. We are to meditate on the truths of the word of God. And do you know what happens when we do this? If you go to Psalm 119 and verse 165, it's just another scripture supporting our thought tonight. Great peace have they who love thy law and nothing shall offend them. So when we take the word and we meditate on it, we analyze it, it dwells richly within us. Then come what may, great peace have they 
who love thy word. We become transformed and we take on the mind of Christ. And as the word of God dwells in us richly, so our conduct, our behavior will be Christ-like. And just so we don't become hearers of the word only, Paul reminds us in verse 9 that we are to practice what we've meditated on. For he says in verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We're to manifest the truth. Paul calls for the Philippians to make it their practice to lead godly, obedient lives. The things which they had learned and received, the doctrine, the instruction of the word of God, they were to implement into their daily lives. The things that they had heard and seen in Paul was the outward working of the indwelling Holy Spirit in his life as seen in his character and in his lifestyle and in his preaching. And he says this, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace. His presence is essential for the strength, the tranquility, and the contentment necessary for our peace of mind. Frances Havigal was born in a Christian home. Her father was a pastor. She was the youngest of six children. Amazing intellect. By the age of three, she could read. She started writing poetry at the age of seven. She was fluent in French, German, Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. She came to personal faith in Christ at the age of 14. By the time she was 22, she could recite from memory all the Gospels, the Epistles, the Book of the Revelation, the Psalms, and Isaiah. Later on, she memorized all the minor prophets. She was also musically talented and was trained as a concert pianist, or artist rather. She devoted her life to singing for the Lord. She wrote poetry and music, such to be sung not only in the church, but to be sung at home and to be sung every day in life. She struggled with poor health and physical weakness, dying at the age of 42. As she had times of great joy and fervor, she also had seasons of depression and doubt. And she took what God showed her in those dark seasons and used it to minister grace to other struggling believers. Having never married, her poems and hymns were her primary means of support. She had signed with an American publisher to have her works published, and she sent her entire manuscripts of poems and hymns to the publisher. The only copy she sent was her only copy, and it was destroyed in a printer's fire. This was before the day of digital files. In that same year that this tragedy occurred, she wrote a hymn of the peace of God that has ministered great comfort to the hearts of hurting 
and struggling believers for more than 150 years. Take your hymnal now and turn with me to page number 699. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace, over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect yet it floweth fuller every day. Perfect yet it groweth deeper all the way. This concept of God's peace is that found all throughout the Old and New Testament. You even find in the book of the Revelation like the river flowing from the throne of God which suggests the source of abundant blessing. Notice the chorus. Stay upon Jehovah. Hearts are fully blessed. Finding as he promised. Perfect peace and rest. This chorus reveals the secret. Of experiencing this perfect peace. That is like a glorious river. Again. Isaiah 26 verse 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on thee. Because he trusteth in thee. This phrase, perfect peace in the Hebrew in Isaiah 26.3 reads like this. Thou will keep him in shalom, shalom. Translated in our English, perfect peace. Complete, total peace. It speaks about the peace, that blessings that come from being in a right relationship with God and living life in his presence. Notice the second stanza. Hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand. Never foe can follow, never traitor stand. Not a surge of worry, not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry. Touch the spirit there. This second stanza reminds us that we are safe in the midst of the storm because we are hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand. Just what the Lord said in John 10, 28, that we are in the hand of the Father and no one can pluck us out. And then notice that last stanza. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. We may trust him fully, all for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him Holy true. This third stanza celebrates the sovereignty of God, who is the blessed controller of all things that is in my life and in your life. The peace that Francis Havigal experienced and wrote about is the same peace that Paul and Silas experienced in prison. And it is the same peace that Paul says every believer ought to have. Four, the Lord is ever near as to hear the cry of our heart and to strengthen us. For the believer may not always be able to control the things that happens in his life, but he's always able to control his response to them. God's plan for my response in every situation is abundantly simple and clear, according to Philippians chapter 4. Don't worry. Always pray. Be thankful. 
think and practice the truth. Also, Paul reminds us that godly thinking is not divorced from godly living. Not only the peace of God, but the God of peace himself overshadows us with his care so that we can say, as Paul says, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. Father, we thank you for your word in reminding us tonight that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He it is who intercedes for us, and that even in the midst of the testing we may be going through, that we're not alone. The Lord is near. Well, Father, take your word and stamp it deep in our hearts and cause us to live out that which the Spirit of God instructed us in tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.